Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Phil Rosenberg. Hi, Phil. Hi, Chris. Now, this week, surgeons in Canada got a big shock when they operated on a man because he turned out to have green blood. Find out why in just a few seconds. Also, we'll be hearing how a fungus that feeds on radiation could be used to feed astronauts in the future. And also how canny game wardens in India are luring leopards with the aid of mobile phones. It must be leopards with good taste. Absolutely. Also, this week, we'll be hearing why cider is extra good for you, why why gargling red wine might help prevent toothache. And in kitchen science, we've got a really, really cool experiment. You'll just need some cornflakes and a magnet. Plus, another reason to give us a call, of course, it is our science Q&A programme, where you phone in and we'll answer any questions you have on anything science. Another reason to phone up is it's our teaser. And uh, I'm going to give away an exclusive copy of my book, Naked Science. It's exclusive nonetheless because I'm going to sign it for you. But what we want to know is how much water will a 50-foot-high oak or maple tree drink every hour on a warm summer's day like this? The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Now, well, w- welcome to this week's programme. W- what would you do if you uh, were a surgeon and you cut into someone you thought they were human and it turned out to be someone from the planet Vulcan? They were green. Well, obviously not on the surface, but inside. Green blood. Yeah, it was. Um, it's actually a paper which has been written up by a, a person called Alana Flexman, who's at the University of British Columbia, and described their experiences with a gentleman who had fallen asleep in a sitting position. He was 42 years old, this guy, and he was a smoker. I think he'd smoked quite heavily in the past and had a number of vascular complications and also had migraines. And so he'd been taking a drug for migraines. He'd nodded off in this sitting position and caused the tissues in his legs to get starved of blood. Right. So the tissue had, of course... Uh, begun to swell and he developed quite painful uh, problem with getting enough blood back into the tissue and so he ended up in hospital and the only way to relieve the swelling in the legs was to cut some of the what are called fascial planes now there's connective tissue in the legs that, that surround all the muscles and they, they divide the legs into sort of compartments if you get swelling in one of those compartments it can press on the blood vessels and stop the blood flowing properly in and out of the leg so by making a small cut into one of these compartments you can relieve the pressure and restore circulation so they operate on him to actually help his circulation that way exactly so uh, when they w- were first anesthetizing him they put in a, a line a, a sort of a cannula into the into the artery in his wrist in order to get measurements of how well his lungs were oxygenating the blood and what came out was a green color Green. Got written up in the Lancet Journal this week. So and how on earth do you get green blood then? Because, well, I mean, that was what they wondered, actually. And the suggestion is, and this is not proven, but there's a strong suggestion. He was on a, a drug for his migraines. Remember, I said he had migraines. Yep. He was on a drug called sumatriptan. And sumatriptan 
clenches down blood vessels to stop them dilating painfully, which is what happens when you get a migraine. Okay, so that's how it works for the migraine. Exactly, but it's got a lot of sulfur in it. Uh, there's a molecule in the sumatriptan that's very rich in sulfur. And in high amounts, these so- so-called sulfonamide groups can latch onto hemoglobin. Okay, and that's they, the stuff that makes the blood red, isn't it, hemoglobin, normally? It is. And they can latch onto the hemoglobin and produce this chemical, sulfhemoglobin. And this is green. Okay, so possibly it latched on and turned his whole blood green. Yeah, once you get beyond a certain amount, I think he had two grams in every litre of his blood, was this combination of sulphur mixed with haemoglobin, this sulphur-haemoglobin combination, and it was enough to make the blood look a green colour. Wow. As he, as he stopped taking the drug and recovered, apparently the greenness went away. That's quite disgusting. Quite, quite hideously disgusting by that. Um, right, I'm going to move on to uh, outer space a little bit, but inspired by the Earth. Um, this was actually some work that was inspired by Chernobyl, the, the big nuclear reactor that, that obviously exploded. Um, and biologists have discovered some fungi in there. They sent a robot in there to, and brought some samples out. And this fungi was incredibly black and actually growing in the reactor core itself. So, you know, actually living in this highly radioactive in, environment. Intense radiation. Yeah, absolutely, really, you know, nasty environment to be living in. And actually it was growing really well. It was thriving there and it was a really black what colour. What was it growing on? It was just growing on, literally growing on the walls in, inside. But they must there. be surviving on something. That water, they must need water and... Other things Absolutely. to eat. It must need things to eat. And actually what they think is that it was getting a lot of its energy from the radiation itself. Actually the black colour of the uh, fungus was actually caused by um, the same stuff that's the pigment in your skin. The uh, melanin. melanin. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's the same sort of idea that the melanin in our skin absorbs the UV light and stops it getting and damaging our, our, um, our DNA. Yeah. And basically this fungi was using the melanin to absorb the radiation and convert that into a food source that it could eat and you could munch away on. In the same way that plants use chlorophyll to uh, trap the sun's energy, these fungi were using radiation. Where do they think the fungi came from in the first place? Because obviously well, they've, they've adapted to be able to do this. Absolutely, and really they're not sure. Uh, but actually it turns out that melanin is quite a common thing to find in fungi. There's a lot of different types of fungi that have melanin in them, all of which, and actually it was a bit of a puzzle as to why it was there in the first place. But really what the outcome of this is that um, basically they're thinking, well, if we can find this melanin in different types of fungi, maybe we can find it in stuff that we can eat. So, so you can't eat this one then? Not this particular one, but there's someone doing tests now in uh, the Albert Einstein Institute in, in America who's actually looking to see if you can get edible fungi with this stuff in that they can grow in space to feed astronauts. So where would, what would be the source of radiation, the cosmic radiation? Yeah, absolutely. So you've got the cosmic radiation, you've got all the nasty UV and the X-rays that have been emitted from the sun, all the stuff that our atmosphere ordinarily blo- blocks out so we, we, so we don't get damaged by it on the Earth, but the astronauts have to cope with it and actually it could be really useful. You better hope that astronauts have, have a taste for Marmite then. Because yeah, absolutely. That's, Marmite's, of course, made from... It's, it's yeast, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I know my girlfriend hates mushrooms. She <laughs> should be stuffed. Mushrooms? Mushrooms, mushrooms fungi, the whole lot. Right. She, Anything that's fungi, she doesn't like, so she'd have no chance to know. It's interesting it. you say that, because it sounds really wacky that there could be yeasts and fungi living on nothing more than radiation, but in fact we spoke with a lady called Lisa Pratt on this programme towards the beginning of the year, because she had been working with a group in South Africa, they were gold miners, and they were down three kilometres underground in one of the world's deepest gold mines, and they split open this seam of rock and outgushed all this water. So they collected some samples of the water, and what was extraordinary was that you 
can use various chemical techniques to date how old water must be. And this water had been underground, it was obvious, and sealed off from the rest of the world for anything up to 30 million years. Wow. But it was thriving with bacteria. So if it was a closed-off community, three kilometres underground, where was it getting its energy? There's no sunlight getting under there to, to give plants and things that could grow for the bacteria to eat. Where were they getting their energy from? Turns out that the uh, natural rocks down there have radioactivity. They have oh, okay. uh, uranium in the rocks. This spits out alpha particles. The alpha particles rip water molecules to pieces, and these make uh, reactive species free radicals that then jump onto iron pyrites, fool's gold in the rock, okay. split out sulfur, and the bugs can then eat the sulfur. Uh, and then okay. they power all of the other bugs that were living in there. So that's the same sort of sulphur that you get in the smoke vents at the bottom of the, bottom of the oceans that would... Uh, different it, it's different method to get it, but it's the same sort of idea. It's a similar idea. They are actually related to those hydrothermal vent bacteria. Excellent. So it's not so weird, you know, to be able to do this. I mean, it's, yeah. it's pretty impressive, really. It's just amazing that these things can survive in such a harsh environment to us and they're thriving away in there. Well, talking about harsh environments, there's an interesting thing out of India this week. Um, I was just reading around and I saw this story and I thought, well, that's int pretty intriguing. But there are some regions in West India, in Gujarat, where... You you have settlements on the edge of forests and leopards periodically come out of the forest and they're looking for food and they end up in the settlement and of course you get injured people because the people try and fend off the leopards and the leopards attack the people. Absolutely. Uh, how do you get rid of the problem? Well in the past what they've tried to do is you, you get a goat, tie it to a tree and uh, dig a big Sounds hole. Sounds like poor goat, to be <laughs> well, honest. But. Well, the idea is that the goat bleats and the leopard comes thinking, hey, I've got some free lunch here, and doesn't notice this big hole you've dug, falls in the hole. Okay, so traps it. You catch it and you can then take it back into the forest. Trouble is, some of the leopards get injured falling in the deep hole, and also it's a lot of work to dig a deep hole. Absolutely, and, and, and it's out is probably not easy. Well, either, well that, honest. and also trying to actually uh, hope that you dig the hole in the right place that the leopard will fall into it. So uh, these park wardens in the in Gujarat have come up with a better way of tackling the problem, and that's the mobile phone because they've really? discovered they can download ringtones that sound like cows or goats. <laughs> so they've got some cages which they've disguised. They've put mobile phones on the back of the cage linked to a speaker system, and they just spend a few hours ringing the phones and the, the phones emit these bleating goat noises or these mooing cow noises. The leopard comes wandering along thinking, where's my lunch? Wanders into the cage. Got him. And, and, and the environmental people say they like the idea because the leopards are much less likely to be injured. And in fact, one of, the, one of the officials who spoke about it said... Um, the moose of a cow and the bleating of the goat has proved very effective to trap leopard leopards. This trick works. <laughs> Fantastic. That's excellent. OK, I'm going to go back up to space again for a second. Uh, and now I'm going to head for Mars. Um, the Mars, or the NASA rovers have been on Mars now for about three years. They're only supposed to last 90 days. And someone now, um, Dr Levin, um, has actually been examining some of the old photos that have been coming back from the Mars rovers. And actually what he's found when he's analysed some of these photos is that some of them look like they've actually got puddles on, puddles of water. Now, this is pretty astounding. In the actual picture? Yeah, absolutely. There's a picture. But that can't be true, surely. Well, that's what a lot of scientists are saying. How is this possible? Because Mars is incredibly cold. There's almost no atmosphere there. So, basically, it's almost impossible for water to exist on the surface of, Mar of, of Mars. In so, so is it just some kind of optical illusion? Or? Well, no-one's really sure at the moment. It, there are some really special conditions where you can get liquid water on the surface of Mars if there's absolutely no wind and if there's just the right amount of sunlight to actually make the surface hot enough, uh, then you can potentially get liquid water. But to actually see it, it seems really, really quite unlikely. Um, there, like I said, there are a few other possible explanations. Possibly it's actually ice that is seen. Um, so it's basically it's just like a, a smooth, bluish surface that's in the depression. 
So it looks like a puddle, basically. But we do think that there's a hell of a lot of water on Mars. Yeah. I mean, there's evidence for, for ancient oceans, which are most of the northern hemisphere of Mars in the past, isn't there? There's, yeah, there's absolutely potentially vast amounts of water, but what we think now is that most of it is underground. It's like yeah. in a permafrost, kind of like what you'd get in Russia and Siberia. It's just an underground star of ice, and basically water on the surface shouldn't really exist. So it's not that much of a wacky idea to suggest that it could actually be Every now and again a... it could turn up. But it really has got implications for uh, potential for life on Mars. You know, maybe these uh, fungi that we were talking about earlier that could survive in high radiation environments, maybe something like that could exist if there's a source of water on Mars. We just have to watch this space. Sorry about that. <laughs> now, very quickly, just to finish off, um, there was a very, very interesting story that came out this week, which, in fact, two scientists have done an identical piece of work on two different sides of the world. And, uh, and it's very, very exciting because what they've managed to do, and this is Rudolf Janisch, who works in Boston in the US, and also Shinya Yamanaka, who's in Kyoto University in Japan, they've managed to make embryonic stem cells but not without using any embryos. They didn't have to go near an embryo. They've done it by turning okay. a mature adult skin cell back into an embryonic stem cell. And the way they've done it is to discover a combination, a cocktail, if you like, of four stem cell genes, which if you switch these four genes on, you can get cells that come out at the end of the day that are impossible to, deter to discriminate. You can't tell them apart from an embryonic stem cell. They have all of the abilities of embryonic stem cells. And why they're so excited about this is that it's early days yet, but if you can make embryonic stem cells, they can turn into almost any tissue in your body. So you could take a cell from, from your skin, yep. you could then make embryonic stem cells that are genetically identical to you, and they can therefore rescue or remedy or be used to, to rebuild or, or repair any tissue in your body, which wow. means in the future, if you can use the or work out how to harness the power of these cells, you can do enormous amounts of repair and regeneration. Fantastic. And if you don't have to go near an embryo, the ethics issues that are there around stem cells largely disappear, I suppose. Exactly, because obviously in this country we're very lucky we are allowed to do some research on embryos, but in some countries in, in the US, uh, where President Bush has said no funding for anybody to do anything to do with stem cells, and also in Australia there's a lot of problems with people being allowed to do this kind of research, it, it, this could be a way in which you can get around that problem and produce something which people find ethically acceptable, but also scientists can therefore explore the potential of. Wow, fantastic. Well, this is The Naked Scientist, and it's Chris and Phil, and it's our science Q&A programme this week. We're answering your science questions. You just have to call in. There's also a teaser running. We want to know this week, a 48 to 50-foot high tree like an oak or a maple, how much water does that drink every single hour on a day like today? The Naked Scientists, supported by The Wellcome Trust. Now, I've got an email here from Ian Syme, who wrote to us, chris at nakedscientist.com, says he loves the show, listens on the podcast on his way to the work in Liverpool. So thank you for that, Ian. Cheers, Ian. A uh, quick question here now for you, Chris. Um, it says, hi, I'm from Singapore. This is Katam. Uh, he loves the show, but he has a question. Why does his voice sound different on a tape recorder or on a microphone compared to when he's normally hearing it? That's a very good question. And there's nothing worse than someone playing your own voice back to you when you've never heard yourself recorded before, is there? Actually, you know what? I really hate it. I, I don't normally listen to the show after we've recorded it for that you don't? same reason. I really don't like my voice, to be perfectly honest. Well, the reason is that what we think we sound like isn't what we really sound like. And the reason for that is that 
in your ears you have this thing called a cochlea which is a special neurological structure that converts the vibrations of sounds in the air into electrical signals that the brain can understand. And it gets stimulated by pressure waves, the sound coming out of the air from noises around you. And at the same time, it can also get conduction of vibrations through bone of your skull. Now, obviously, when you are listening to sounds in the environment, the chief source of those sounds is coming through the air. Very little of it's coming through your bone. But when you're speaking, your whole head resonates, it vibrates, and this means that your cochlea gets stimulated by your skull vibrating, as well as the sound coming out of your mouth and going round into the air and then into your ears. So the body does two things. One, it gets obviously a, a different version of those vibrations because your skull is vibrating, but also it's got its own kind of protective device to cut down the amount of sound which is going in into the cochlea. So it reduces the sensitivity a little bit when you're speaking to yourself oh, okay. of your of your own ear so you get a slightly different rendition of what your voice sounds like so that's why when you hear yourself recorded back you sound totally different because all you're hearing back from the tape recorder is sound coming through the air minus just this skull vibration the bone conduction through your ear without actually coming through the bone wow fantastic so there's your answer thanks Catan, for that and i've got one for you uh, here phil uh this is from mike mike roberts and he says one of the voyager probes has left the solar system what speed uh, would it have to achieve in order to escape from our solar system? Is there anything special that it needs to do to do that? Well, there's nothing special. Essentially, it's just the same as when you're launching a rocket off the surface of the Earth, you've got to get it to go in fast enough that it escapes the Earth's gravity. Now, if you are standing on the sun, on the sun's surface, be a bit, bit warm, bit uh, baking-like, but... You About 5,000 degrees, isn't it? bit toasty, yeah. But if you were stood there and you could launch a rocket from the surface of the sun, you'd have to get it up to... 617.5 kilometres a second to get it to launch out of the solar system, to get it to disappear. Now, as it happens, we're on the Earth, and the Earth's already going at 30 kilometres a second, so you don't need to get it to go quite that fast. So you've already got a bit of the energy there to do that. Uh, but basically, actually, from the Earth, you couldn't possibly launch something at those kind of speeds. To actually put a rocket boost on something and fire at that kind of speed is impossible. What you have to do to get out to the far solar system is to get a bit of a free lunch by whizzing past another planet... Or a free launch, even. A free launch, in fact, yeah, absolutely. Uh, by whizzing past another planet and nicking a little bit of energy off it as you go past. And that's how... They call it the gravity assist. And that's how most of the spacecraft get out to Saturn and Jupiter and out to the far reaches of the solar system and beyond. Because you point the probe at a planet where it is now so that by the time the probe actually gets to the planet, having been accelerated by that planet's gravity, the planet's moved on a bit. So absolutely. It's a bit it just along. nicks a bit of energy... Gives it a slingshot out. Well, let's find out what your knowledge of galaxies is like, uh, Phil, because Connor in Tillingham wants to ask you something. Hello, Connor. T tell us your question for Phil. Yes, what would happen if another galaxy collided with our own? Would the spaces between the stars give us any chance of survival? Well, actually, yes. Um, the density of stars in a galaxy is pretty minimal. Uh, if two galaxies collide, the probability, actually, that not one single star would collide along with it but what would happen is there's a lot of gas in galaxies, and um, this gas would collide. As it collides, it gets compressed. And actually that would, in itself, form a whole new generation of stars. And the actual gravity of each star would start spinning everything out of control. What you end up with, really, often, is a great big mess. Uh, but actually, us personally, sat on, on the Earth, we'd probably survive, to be perfectly honest. Now, it's funny you might mention that, because actually we do know there is one galaxy that is going to collide with our own, and that's the Andromeda, Andromeda Galaxy. And we actually think that in about three billion years, that's going to collide with the, with the solar system. Uh, and we, well, with, the, with our galaxy, with the Milky Way. So even before our sun's died? 
Which is yeah, about absolutely. five billion years away. So there might even be people on the Earth, not maybe humans, but something similar, actually be able to observe what happens when two galaxies collide right in situ, right there from the situation. There's also something else quite intriguing to add to that, Phil, which is the piece, re, piece of research that was published last year where scientists were watching Andromeda and one of its little kind of dwarf galaxies sitting next to it. And what uh, it was actually a researcher called David Block from the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. What he saw was this ripple effect in Andromeda, and these ripples are spreading out. And if you wind back the clock on where they've got to so far, it will put their origin at about 200 odd million years ago when a dinosaur was trotting around on earth and the model they've come up with is that the andromeda galaxy must have already collided with one of its companion galaxies and we're seeing that so it We've looks like galaxies can survive a collision yeah absolutely. Um, but you do get this this sort of ripple effect and i suppose it's anybody's guess what the results of that would be absolutely and there's a, a galaxy called uh, the antenna galaxy and that's again it's the combination of two galaxies that have merged and basically these two antennae they look like have been stars that have been thrown out of the whole process and they look like two antennae fantastic sort of science to be able to look at that kind of stuff. It's a good question Connor. Would you I like could to, have uh, one a part of the question to do with that Yes. Um, if all the galaxies are sort of moving in the same direction roughly the same speed wouldn't one have to be moving faster than the other to collide? Yeah absolutely and they're not actually all moving in the same direction. They're, on average they're all moving away from each other but actually within uh, close by galaxies uh, some of them are moving together they're all orbiting around uh, different galaxies and you have what you find as big clusters of galaxies called superclusters, uh, and they're all orbiting each other so actually it's one big sort of cosmic oh, right. mess basically and everything's sort of going all over the place and these things do happen they happen quite frequently galaxies do collide that's great. Thanks very much. Quick go at the quiz, Connor. Uh, yes, please. Okie dokie. Uh, global carbon dioxide levels have risen by about 10% since the time of the Industrial Revolution. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Um, fiction. Absolutely correct. Atmospheric carbon dioxide levels have gone up about 30% actually in the last 300 years. Which is a pretty big jump, isn't it? Mm. Uh, lignite's a type of coal, Connor. Is that uh, fact or fiction? Uh, fact. <laughs> Absolutely. It's actually a form of quite low-grade, crumbly brown coal, oh, mainly used in power stations, actually. <laughs> All right. Connor, thanks for your call. It was a great question. OK. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. In just a second, we'll be talking with Serena Marks from the uh, University of Glasgow. She's working on cider and why it might be good for you. But speaking of apples and food in general, Ben and Dave have recently been microwaving bread, jamming a jar full of rice, and this week they're going to be using magnets instead of milk for looking to look for something special in your breakfast cereal. Hi, Ben. Hello, thank you. Welcome to Kitchen Science. I'm here at St Mary's School in St Neots and I'm with Blake and I'm with Charlie. Hello. Do you two like science at school then? Yes, because you get to try experiments and it's fun, mind you, try them. So do you like finding out about the world? Yeah. Now, I'm also, of course, with Dave Ansell. Hi there. And uh, Dave seems to be having his breakfast. Why have you got some cornflakes, Dave? It's a Sunday evening. We're going to be having a look at what's inside cornflakes. Okay, so what do you think might be inside your cornflakes? Wheat, and that's probably it. Okay then, Dave, cornflakes. What's going on? So all you need for this experiment is some cereal, which is fortified in iron, a magnet, and something to crush up that cereal in. So like a pestle and mortar? We've got pestle and mortar. You can do it with a bowl and a spoon, anything like that. So, Blake, what I'd like you to do is take some of these cornflakes and put them in the pestle and mortar... And then, Charlie, I want you to crush them up. So Blake's now opening this bag of cornflakes, and there's only about a usual breakfast bowl of cornflakes. Do you eat cornflakes for breakfast? Sometimes, but my favourite thing I eat is cocoa pops. 
Cocoa Pops, okay. Can you get Cocoa Pops at a fortified with Iron Dough? I think they probably are, yeah. So you could use Cocoa Pops if you wanted to try this at home. Any breakfast cereal that's fortified with iron, it should say that on the box somewhere. So now we have a, a good pestle and mortar full of cornflakes there. And Charlie's got the pestle and he's going to crush them up. You want to really crush them up into fine powder. So, Dave, what are we going to do once we have our cornflake powder? So when we've got the cornflake powder, all we're going to do is take a magnet. Uh, you want not, a, not a, one of those flexible fridge magnets, you want a solid magnet. And um, the solid ones out of a fridge magnet will probably work. And then stir it through all the dust and see what happens. So then, what do you think is going to happen when you put magnets in your breakfast cereal? We will be back at St Mary's School with Charlie and with Blake very soon. So uh, good luck and get calling. Sounds like fun. Uh, thank you very much to Ben and Dave. We're out there at St Mary's at St Neots crunching up their breakfast cereal. If you want to have a go, just get your cornflakes, smash them all up, and once you've got a nice tiny sort of dusting of cornflakes, get your magnet, dip it in. What do you see when you play around with it like that? Talking of kitchen science, got an email here from Steve Rice, who said uh, he attempted our magnifying glass and window experiment the other day, and now he has a something large black mark on his wall and a wife who's nagging him to get the emulsion out of the garage. Thanks a lot, so Steve Rice, who's in Kettering. So thank you very much for that. And uh, if you want to have uh, a go at any any science questions, Dr Chris, Dr Phil uh, are here to answer your questions. Got a few people who have had a go at the teaser so far. We want to know, on a warm summer's day like today, how much water will a 50-foot oak or maple tree drink every hour phil we've got a couple of answers in here so from tony in westcliff he thinks about 40 gallons uh, rowena in malden of essex thinks about 30 gallons that is the naked scientist dr chris and dr phil and joining us now serena marks is from the university of glasgow hello serena hello you've been doing some interesting work on cider tell us about that um okay so uh, last year i've been i was analyzing cider apples and looking for different levels of antioxidants um, and this year we've just kind of released some data about ciders showing that um, some of them have quite high levels of antioxidants. So just tell us what an antioxidant is and does and why we need them. Okay, um, briefly, antioxidants um, are thought to quench free radicals in the body. So these are really um, reactive compounds that can do some damage in your body. And, and it's believed that these might help against, um, antioxidants might help against certain diseases, for example, cancer and heart disease. So... As, the more the, the more of them you can pack into your body, I suppose, the better. Um, that's a theory, yes. So, what's the sort of bottom line with respect to making cider, and, and is, is, should we therefore be drinking cider instead of just eating apples? Um, yeah, uh, actually, the previous work we looked at the cider apples. We actually found out that they contained more of these antioxidants than normal dessert apples. Um, and then we've gone on to look at the ciders and actually found that um, ciders made from um, cider apples that contain a lot of these antioxidants actually have higher levels than other ciders that are made from cider apples that contain lower levels. So, What do you think is going on? Why is that? Um, I think it's just um, the more antioxidants you've got at the beginning, the more likely it is to make it through the process um, and into the final product. Um, and again, we found that um, apple juice, some of the apple juices actually contain lower levels than the ciders. And that's, again, because the apple juices are made from um, dessert apples, which contain lower levels of these compounds. We had um, Roger Corder from the Barts and the London Medical oh, yeah. School on this programme earlier this year. Yeah. He's been looking at red wine. Yeah. And he's been looking, again, at antioxidants in red wine. And an interesting thing he said was that when you look at these wines, you can't just drink the juice 
you need the alcohol there, which is good news for people like me who like a glass of red wine, <laughs> um, because he said that the good-for-you things, these antioxidants, actually, and procyanidin was the one he was interested in, dissolve in the alcohol. So if you don't have the alcohol, you don't get as much of the goodies out of the grapes when you squash them and, and the grape pips. Well, um, the st- uh, last year I did um, a feeding study looking at... Um, um, putting people on a low phenolic diet um, for 36 hours and then getting them to drink a pint of cider and taking blood and urine. So hopefully from our data we'll be able to understand if you drink a pint of cider how many of these phenolics are absorbed and we, we can compare this with data used um, when they used apple juice to see if there is a difference. And um, procyanidins are actually um, actually in cider and cider apples as well. And cider apples contain very high levels of these. So again, cider might be a good source of procyanidins. Although, is a pint of cider a day consistent with good health in other respects? Because that's quite a lot of alcohol in some cases, isn't um, it? Especially if you drink good scrumpy. If you're talking about a 4% cider, that's what, about two units. Um, again, even half, maybe even half a pint of cider might be enough. We, we're just trying to work out um, how, how much of these phenolics are absorbed when you drink with the, what we were drinking, what the subjects were drinking with 500 ml. So to get an idea of how much you would have to drink to get these phenolics into your body. I have to ask Serena, just to finish, uh, who actually sponsored the study? Okay, uh, the, the study is actually sponsored by the National Association of Cider Makers. Do you think that might have had an impact on the results? Uh, no, it didn't, because I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the bottom line at the moment is you're waiting to see whether apple juice is as good as cider, but you get lots and lots of antioxidants from drinking cider. So if you had a choice between beer and cider, it should be cider. Oh, definitely cider. Cider contains much more antioxidants than beer. Thank you very much, Serena Marks, from the University of Glasgow. Thank you. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work? Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. It is the Naked Scientist with Chris and Phil, and Alan is in Kent. He wants to ask us a question. Hello, Alan. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Naked Scientist. What can we ask, what can we answer for you? Well, it shows you listen to the Naked Scientist. Yeah, I, I mean I, that was that was interesting, wasn't it? Because it was, I didn't yeah. know that um, cider was a so rich in these things and b better for you than beer. So we'll obviously oh, yeah. have to switch. If there's beer and cider, I think cider's the decider, don't you? It could be. There's another reason to drink red wine, though. Which, if you keep listening in a second, we'll be talking to Mark Peplow from Chemistry World, and he's got a reason why red wine could be better for us for for other reasons. So that's coming up in a second. But anyway, your question, right, my Alan. Question. Yeah, it's about rainbows, actually. Hmm. Um, it's it, it, it sort of s- several questions come out of it, but to start with, um, there's a rain. It, we know the colours of the rainbow, um, and I think it's something to do with the droplets of rain. I'm not quite sure how that works. Hmm. The other thing is, is does it follow the contours of the um, horizon? You know, like the, the curvature of the world gives you the curvature of the rainbow. Okay. Or is it the curvature of the sun that gives you the curvature? Which, which one is it? It's actually neither. Um, the way in which you get a rainbow is when you have a nice dark cloudy sky as your background so you can actually see the rainbow and then you have sun shining at it so that obviously you need sun and dark clouds and some rain. Those are the three ingredients for a rainbow. The sun beams, the, the rays of sunlight, go into a raindrop and they reflect off the back inside surface of the raindrop and come out the front again. 
And when they come out the front, the raindrop therefore behaves like a prism and it splits the light up into all the different wavelengths that make white light because when light comes from the sun, it's white light and that's not just one colour, it's lots of different colours added together which when you see them together look white and that's why when you split them up, you see the colours. Now, then you're going to say, what's a double rainbow? Well, that's when the light that's gone into the raindrop does a double journey, reflects off the back of the rainbow, bounces off the front inside surface, sorry, of the raindrop, bounces off the front inside surface of the raindrop, back onto the back of the raindrop and back out the front again. And because it's done a longer journey and, and been bent a little bit with every single one of those reflections, you see a rainbow outside the first rainbow, but the colours are the, are the other way around. The curvature of the rainbow is different. It's because what you would see, if you could see it from far enough away, you'd see a circle. It's because what it's doing is spraying the, the uh, light out in all directions in a circular way. You, you just don't see the circle because the Earth's in the way. Right. Well, how, how do we get um, maybe a similar um, type of rainbow from, say, a uh, compact disc or a surface of a puddle with oil on it? Or um, ah. th- th- These all seem to have the same effect. Yes, that's a, clever, that's a good question. And the reason that you see a rainbow effect on oil is because of what's called interference. Now, oil, when you put oil on the surface of water, it spreads out into a very, very thin film, which is anything, it can be anything like 10 10 molecules right up to about 100 molecules thick. So it's very, very thin. And each of them can act like a tiny mirror. So when light, light rays bounce off the surface of the water, some of them will bounce off the water surface and some will bounce off of some of the oily film surfaces. And because the light is a wiggly wave, If you make the wiggly waves not line up with each other, then where you get an upward part of one wave lining up with a downward part of another wave, the two can cancel out. And this is called interference. And so you get a pattern or of colours which is according to how much of that interference is occurring, which is why you get this rainbow effect, because you've got oil films of different thicknesses causing different amounts of this interference phenomenon coming off the surface. Same on a bubble, I suppose. Yeah? Exactly the same. A bubble is an oily film, and the you can get different thicknesses of, of bubble film because it's just flowing. It's a liquid flowing, and that's why you see those funny spectrum colours coming off the surface of a bubble. So is it also possible to have the same effect from a, a, a moonbeam? Like from a moon? Look at the moon, would that uh, give us mm. also a moonbow? You do get some similar effects from, a, from the moon. What you actually often get is... Um, the moon uh, reflecting off ice crystals in the atmosphere. When you get the really high clouds made of ice crystals, you often get a similar sort of effect. It doesn't look as spectacular as a, a rainbow, and it's not necessarily as common. It's a lot fainter. But you do get a similar sort of effect. Yeah. Right. Quick go to the fact or fiction for you, Alan. OK. The yes. concept of atoms was first proposed 2,000 years ago. Do you think that's fact or fiction? Um, the concept of atoms. I would say that's very likely true. Absolutely true. In fact, it was the Greek philosopher uh, Lucipus uh, of Miletus and his pupil Democritus came up with the idea about 450 BC. That was quite a tongue twister, that. Sorry. Democritus. (laughs) (laughs) And your next one, Alan. You've got to get this right to stay in the game because Connor's already got two out of two. An earthquake measuring eight on the Richter scale would be twice as powerful as one with a magnitude of four. Is that science fact or science fiction? I would say that's fiction. Absolutely true. The Richter scale is what we call logarithmic, so every time you go up one number, actually you're multiplying by the strength by 10. So actually it would be 10,000 more times more powerful rather than uh, just twice as powerful. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. 
Alan in Kent. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris and Phil. In a second, we'll be talking to Chemistry World editor Mark Peplow about what's hot this month in the world of chemistry. Now, it's time to head over to America now, which is the spiritual home of the super-sized Big Mac, for this week's obesity-themed science update. Hi, guys. This week for The Naked Scientist, we're going to tell you some of the things scientists are learning about what contributes to obesity. I'm going to talk about kids' TV and junk food. But first, Chelsea's here to tell us what love and marriage have to do with it. Couples who shack up risk seeing their weight ratchet up. That's according to epidemiologist Penny Gordon-Larson and student Natalie Tay of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. They found that couples who are married or just living together are more likely to have one or both partners be obese than couples who are just dating. Tay says there may be something about living together that promotes obesity, like more time demands or more food around, or people might just pick partners who share their tendencies. So maybe, you know, if I'm sedentary, I like also spending time with someone who wants to watch TV or watch movies, as opposed to someone who wants to go out and run. Whatever the reason, the findings suggest that people who want to make lifestyle changes would do well to convince their partners to join them. Thanks, Chelsea. On average, kids eat nearly twice as much after seeing junk food ads on TV than they do after watching ads for non-food items. That's the result of a new study at the University of Liverpool. Psychologist Jason Halford says the effect was strongest in overweight and obese children. Those kids not only increased their eating by higher percentages, but also gravitated more toward high-fat snacks after watching the food commercials. And those brands were not advertised. Although the adverts were for branded foods, the foods we served them weren't linked to the brand in any way. So it was a beyond-brand effect, if you see what I mean. Halford notes that TV watching is directly related to childhood weight gain and suggests the barrage of food ads may be partly responsible. Thanks, Bob. Next time, we'll talk about some cool self-planting seeds. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thank you very much, guys. And you can hear more from Bob and Chelsea via their website, which is scienceupdate.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Chris and Phil on The Naked Scientist. And I've uh, got an email here from Chuck Root who says he's listening to us in his uh, car with his radio adapter because he listens to the podcast. The show's terrific. Well, thanks very much uh, to you, Chuck. Now, Mark Peplow's here from Chemistry World. He's Hello, from Chris. the Royal Society of Chemistry, which is actually based in Cambridge, Chemistry World magazine. Um, Mark's the editor. And what have you got for us this month? Well, the first story up um, is uh, a tad gruesome, but absolutely fascinating. Um, It's about the former head of China's State Food and Drug Agency. Just over a week ago, um, he was sentenced to death after being found guilty of bribery and corruption. Now, this is such a big deal because um, estimates of how many people die in China every year as a result of taking counterfeit or substandard drugs, it runs into the hundreds of thousands. Now, uh, this guy, Zheng Xiaoyu, um, uh, was in charge of the state drug agency for about eight years, and he's been found guilty of taking bribes of up to a million dollars from eight different pharmaceutical companies and illegally approving their products. It's quite interesting because most people don't view China as being the most open country in the world when it comes to giving information and human rights and that kind of thing. So it seems strange that they're taking such a tough stance on this guy. Is it because it directly affects people in China that they've done this? It's much broader than that, actually. Um, One of the interesting things about the way that um, China's business, industry and science is going at the moment is that there's this huge push uh, to get into the global marketplace and also to attract investment from abroad into China. Um, It's generally seen, this move uh, to execute Zheng, it's generally seen as a way to send out a real 
uh, getting tough message to the rest of the world that the Chinese government are trying to clean up the amount of bribery and corruption that really spreads throughout the whole state system but has particularly affected the pharmaceutical industry. It's very telling that on the day that his execution was announced uh, there was no official comment from the Chinese drug agency but uh, they did post the second draft of their revised regulations on how they were going to clean up their industry. Still a pretty radical thing to to just execute someone. I mean, we've got people in prison here for doing probably a lot more corruptive things than that, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. And as uh, many commentators have pointed out, that this may actually be a counterproductive move. Um, clearly, uh, Zheng isn't the only person uh, guilty of corruption within the drug agency. In fact, there's a great deal of evidence that it's really the negligence of local officials, which is the main problem here. Um, so this is likely to send out, I think, a mixed message to pharmaceutical companies wanting to invest in China, uh, because... Uh, you might get executed. The, well, it shows that the rule of law is is uh, somewhat patchy. It also shows that it's extremely open to political motivation as well. There've been there's been a massive smear campaign against this guy before he was found guilty, running in Chinese state media for the last six months. Well, that's certainly food for thought. We're talking of food for thought. Atkins, and uh, it, it made the guy who wrote the book an absolute fortune. Unfortunately, he's no longer here to enjoy that fortune because he fell over in Boston in the ice and hurt himself. Uh, but people now have found some kind of scientific credence for his argument that eating a high-fat diet makes you lose weight. That's right. Uh, the Atkins diet is uh, basically very high fat, very low carbohydrate, uh, and it's called a ketogenic diet basically because it makes your body break down fatty acids into a variety of compounds which are broadly classed as ketones. Uh, so in breaking down these fatty acids, in theory, it's going to help you slim down. Now, there's, there's two studies that were published last week um, in a journal called Cell Metabolism. The first found that um, this sort of ketogenic diet, low in carbohydrates, high in fat, stimulates the production of a hormone called fibroblast growth factor 21. Um, a second study published in the same week found that this growth factor um, actually stimulates fat metabolism in the liver. And in particular, that study, which was done in Texas, um, they actually treated mice by injecting them with this growth factor and found that it made the animals look as though they were starving. It turned on this starvation response. So they switched from using carbohydrates to burning up their fat stores as an energy supply. So is this the diet pill of the future then? Is this the, the weight loss strategy, remedy, whatever you want to call it, that people have been searching for? Well, um, there's no way to tell because um, it may very, this may be the hormone that's responsible for actually turning your body on to burning its fat supplies. But at this stage, um, clearly the experiments have just been done in mice. There's no telling what else it's doing to your body. Mm, sounds worrying. And um, talking of putting things into your body that might actually do good things, though, I mean, let's end on a, a high note here. We've heard about cider. Now you've got some good news about red wine. Yeah, this is a nice, fun story for any wine lover, really. Um, uh, a team of scientists at the University of Pavia in Italy um, have been investigating uh, what happens to the wine when you slosh it around your mouth. And in fact, they found well, that... Well, it tastes good. Well, it tastes good for a start, but they found that both red and white wine can actually kill the bacteria um, that causes uh, caries, otherwise known as tooth decay. Isn't that just the alcohol? 
Well, that's the interesting thing. You might think that, um, but they actually checked this. They de-alcoholised their wines prior to the test in order to exclude that effect of alcohol on, on bacterial growth. They also checked uh, to make sure that it wasn't the acidity of the wine. They, they uh, sort of made some synthetic wine, if you like, of exactly the same pH, the same acidity, and tested that, and it had nothing like the effect. They think they've pinned down the effect to a group of acids called uh, succinic acid, malic acid, tartaric acid acid that are present in wines, particularly prevalent in red wine, um, they think they've pinned down the fact that these can inhibit the activity of enzymes, which are big molecules that speed up chemical reactions in cells. Uh, they actually slow them down, uh, and effectively that kills off the bacteria. More than 99.9% of all the bacteria in your mouth in one particular case. How much better is this or worse than, than just toothpaste? To ask just just a, a blunt question, because obviously we encourage people to clean their teeth. That's good, isn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, clearly this isn't the only way that you can kill bacteria in your mouth, and there are a variety of mouthwashes out there. But, you know, if you're looking for another excuse to have just that extra glass of wine, make sure you slosh it around your mouth good and proper. The only slight downside is, of course, these red wines have a lot of tannin, don't they, Mark? And so you end up with nice, I'm sure, carey-free teeth, but it doesn't stop them going black, at least in the short term. <laughs> That's possibly true, but um, as in all things, moderation is the key i think <laughs> thanks mark that's mark peplow who's the editor of chemistry world magazine from the royal society of chemistry and you can find out more about mark and what he writes about in his work at chemistryworld.org this is the naked scientist in the meantime with chris and phil and don't forget we've got a teaser running tonight uh, we want to know on a warm summer's day like today how much water will a 50 foot oak or maple tree drink every single hour now, last week we kicked off our Question of the Week feature with a question from Brian in Norwich about dropping a stone through a hole in the earth. This week, Sabina has a more cerebral question for you. Hello. Welcome to Question of the Week. Last week we discussed what would happen if you dropped a stone into a hole through the centre of the earth. We had a huge response, and some of you wrote in to say that the expert's explanation relied on the hole going from the north to the south pole, otherwise the stone would hit the sides of the hole as the earth turned. This is absolutely right. Thank you all, including David from Australia, Ben from Canada and Ben from the USA. This week, we're looking at Jen's question. My name's Jen and I come from Cambridge. And I'd like to know, is it true that you only use 10% of your brain at any given time? Now, I'm sure we all know someone who seems to use only 10% of their brain. But is it true of everyone all the time? I asked Barry Gibb, author of The Rough Guide to the Brain, to explain. This is one of those urban myths that just won't seem to go away. I mean, I can understand why people like the idea that 90% of their mental potential lies dormant or untapped, because clearly that implies that if they're able to tap into this, you know, we could all be geniuses. But that's just not the case. The truth is closer to something along the lines of it's because the brain's actually so good at what it does so much of the time that we're completely unaware of how much it's actually doing. So, for example, if you take a scenario of just doing something we do all the time, just having a chat with a friend, walking down the road, then there's so many things going on there simultaneously, like involuntary actions that the brain's controlling, such as breathing. Then the voluntary actions, all of the muscles are being controlled by the brain as well as we take our stroll and we have a conversation. At the same time, you're probably going to be using the vast majority of all your senses, again, using a vast component of the brain. Not to mention the fact that you're having conversation, which means you're suddenly dragging up this whole plethora of, of, of language areas. You're, you're delving into your memories. You're accessing emotions. I mean, and you're deciding what to say to your friend. Now, every single part of what you're doing during that conversation uses the brain. So instead of only using 10% of the brain, 
I'd say under most normal circumstances, you're actually using the vast majority. Tom in Australia wrote in to say he thinks this urban legend originated from Dale Carnegie's book How to Win Friends and Influence People, and asks which 90% should be removed. That's a very good point. 10% of our brain would be equivalent in size to a sheep's brain. We also had an email from Templeton to say things like brain scans show that different parts of the brain do different jobs. They're all active at the same time, but some are more active than others, depending on what you're doing at the time. Plus, the brain uses 25% of the body's energy, so evolution would never have allowed us to develop larger brains than sheep if we weren't going to use them. Now it's time for you to turn 100% of your brain to next week's question. I'm Jeff Sweetwood from Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, my question is,、uh, why are bugs attracted to light? Think you know what the answer might be, or perhaps you've got a question of your own. Send me an email to questionofthewee@thenakedscientist.com. But now back to the studio. Thanks, Sabina. So, if you think you know why moths fly towards lights, let us know by emailing questionofthewee@thenakedscientist.com. And、uh, just to follow that one up, we've、uh, since Sabina put that together, I've had another email from Kevin Kinney.、Uh, he's over in the states, and he said, "I enjoy your podcast a great deal. It's among my favourite dozen or so science-related podcasts I follow each week." So I guess he's, I suppose you could say, a science geek like us. He says about question of the week, "No, no, 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 no! This ten percent business is an ancient myth which continues to be propagated, probably going back to when folks did brain stimulation experiments and found lots of spots that didn't seem to cause any overt movement or sensations in the brain. In fact, humans and all animals must use their brains." Capacity. Otherwise, why have it? A brain is a very expensive organ to grow and maintain metabolically, and it would be nonsensical for us to maintain this huge amount of extra material unused, as well as packaging material. So, please put that one to rest. So, thank you very much for that, Kevin. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the naked scientists. Let's catch up with.、Uh, What the guys are up to with their breakfast cereal? Ben and Dave ask you to grind up your cornflakes and to then stir the dust that you found up with a magnet. So, let's get back to them and find out what's going on. Boys, what are you up to? Welcome back to Kitchen Science. Still here at St Mary's with Charlie and with Blake, and、uh, we now have our, our very fine dust that we got from our cornflakes. And Dave's going to tell us what to do with it next. Okay, so Charlie, if you'd like to put that magnet in there and stir it around. I'm, I'm putting the magnet in there and stirring all the cereal up, and it's sticking to the magnet. So what's sticking to the magnet? All the cereal. It's just because it's mashed up. It's all like hooking onto it, and it's staying on there. Dave, why would bits? I mean, is it just that the cornflakes are sticky, or is there a particular reason why they'd stick to a magnet? Well, we can see if it is because the cornflakes are sticky, because I've got an even stronger magnet here, and if I push that near these, can you see they're getting picked up by it? Yeah, they're sort of like getting pulled off the、um, other magnet onto the strong magnet. It's not just that they're a bit damp and sticking to the magnet; they're actually getting pulled off. Have you ever looked at your cereal packet when you're bored, you're having breakfast in the morning, and seeing it says fortified with iron? No. Oh, maybe you haven't read your、um, packet enough. But some of them say fortified with iron, and iron's very important for you because it's what your body uses to make your blood red, and that's called hemoglobin. It's got a little iron atom in it, and it's what carries the oxygen around your body. So we need to eat lots of iron so that you, you can actually get oxygen to your hands and your legs and all your organs. They put this iron into breakfast cereals. They don't actually put iron filings in the breakfast cereals. They put in something called iron oxide, which is a bit like rust, which is also another kind of iron oxide, but it's still、um, got lots of iron in it. And this iron oxide is actually magnetic, 
And so you can pick it up with your magnets from your breakfast cereal, proving they do actually put iron in breakfast cereal and they're not just lying to you. So did you find that at home? Did you find that when you pushed your magnet through your cornflakes, you picked up little bits? And uh, by the looks of it, it's not just because your magnet was dirty. It is, in fact, because of the iron oxide in the cornflakes. Now, I wouldn't personally recommend eating your cornflake dust, but, you know, as long as your magnet was clean. So, again, from St Mary's School in St Neots, thank you very much to Charlie and Blake. Goodbye. Goodbye. Well, thanks, Ben. So there you are. There really is iron in your breakfast cereal, which is enough to make the cereal magnetic. And if you want to see how to do that, there are a lot of fun and funky experiments like that. Now about 60 plus, I think, of those kind of experiments, which are all on our website. And you can find out how to do them and see pictures of them in action at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. So head down there now. The guys will be back next week with some more exciting, fun and funky kitchen science. Now, Phil, we asked this week because uh, it was a nice warm day, and I was looking at the trees in my garden, which is why I thought of this question. How much water does a thirsty oak tree or maple tree, about 50 feet high, drink per hour when it's a warm day like this? OK, here's the calculation, then. We reckon that a 50-foot tree has got about 177,000 leaves, covering an area in total of about 675 square metres. So that's a sixth of an acre. And this would evaporate out and you have to replace by sucking up through the roots around 58 gallons that's 219 litres every hour on a warm day like today and even more actually if it's windy and our winner today is Jim from Norfolk who guessed 240 he was the closest cheers very much that's very very good well done Jim got a quick email here Phil from um, Sue Cox who says when it's warm during the day and then it freezes at night in the morning you sometimes see mud with icicles sticking up and it looks as if the water in the mud was expelled really fast into the air and you get these mid-air frozen icicles. They can be several inches high sometimes and very fragile. What causes them? Any suggestions? I would have thought it was more likely to be water condensing out of the atmosphere, to be honest, and then you get one little point of ice and then another bit of point of ice sticks to it and another bit of droplet sticks to it and freezes and freezes and freezes and then you get these little spires of ice sort of forming on the surface, kind of like frost. Yeah, I agree. It's water in the atmosphere and once you've got a rough surface, a nucleation centre, uh, a nice spiky ice crystal which is already nice and cold, it's, it's helping it to get started. Yeah, absolutely. Once you've got one, it can suck more close to it and really get it going. Now, this is interesting. This is um, an email from Philip who says, I've um, been wondering something for a long time. If someone went out into space and forgot to put on their spacesuit, would they feel cold? Within the atmosphere, it feels cold if air blows across your skin. But in a vacuum, is it possible to feel cold? My guess is that the water in the person's skin would freeze and make them feel cold, but I don't really know. What do you think, Phil? Well, actually, the temperature in space is a bit colder than on Earth. That's because we've got an atmosphere that keeps us nice and snug and warm. So if you're about the same distance from the sun as the Earth, the temperature is going to be about minus 50 degrees C. Now, you're right, it's really difficult to actually lose heat. You only lose it by radiation, and that's caused by molecules or electrons, essentially, in a material vibrating, and they emit by vibrating infrared radiation. So you would cool down. So that's basically the way it works. about minus 50 degrees T in space. So, yeah, a bit chilly. But, but in the sun, it's hot. Yeah, well, when you're in the sun, it's hot, but your back is getting really... If you're looking at the sun, your back's going to get even colder, and that's because it's really difficult to conduct the heat from the front of you to the back of you because you've got no atmosphere blowing it round, essentially. So it's really difficult to actually transfer temperatures. You actually get quite a big temperature gradient in space. Things get hot when they're in the sun, and they get very cold when they're out of the sun. Now, Keith in Sudbury says, if a Milky Way went through a black hole, would it come out the other side intact? Would we survive? Well, actually, black holes are quite small, a lot smaller than the Milky Way. And actually, the Milky Way has got a massive black hole right in the middle of it. Each, each, we now think that each galaxy has got a big black hole in the middle of it, and all the stars are spinning around the centre with this black hole in the middle. 
There's one quick question here for you, actually, Chris. Uh, it says, it's from Jeremy in uh, Pennsylvania. He says, uh, I've been learning about environmental science in school, just graduated, and have been confronted with an, an alternative view of global warming. My textbook tells me that global warming is entirely anthropogenic, but I've heard from sources that the Earth has cycles which heats and cools. Which one's right? Well, this is a difficult area. So I sent that question to Jonathan Shanklin, who is from the British Antarctic Survey. He was on this programme just recently. And this is what he says. He says, The Earth does crew through regular cycles of warm and cold, and we're currently in one of the warm periods. The cycles are clearly shown in Antarctic ice cores, which show several cycles over the last 750,000 years, with each one lasting around 120,000 years. Carbon dioxide levels and methane levels are high during the warm periods and low during the cold periods. The main driver behind these changes are variations in the Earth's orbit, and these would suggest that we should now be heading towards a very slow cooling. We have, however, changed our atmosphere so fundamentally that carbon dioxide levels are much higher than at any time in the past 750,000 years. This much higher level of CO2, 30% higher in fact, is what's giving rise to the anthropogenic global warming. We're probably committed to at least a 5 degree rise in average global temperatures. This will have a dramatic effect on ice cover and sea levels. The need to cut carbon dioxide levels so urgently is to prevent things getting even worse. The problem is actually even greater than this, because in the developed world we're consuming resources from over three planets, which is not sustainable, as we only have one planet. It's a sobering thought, isn't it, that we could have changed our atmosphere by such a huge amount in such a short space of time. Thank you very much to Jonathan Shanklin from the British Antarctic Survey for that answer. Well, that's pretty much all we've got time for on this week's Naked Scientist. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Phil Rosenberg for coming in and helping to present. Thank you, Phil. And also to our production team, Ben Valsler, Asi Kateri and Sabina Miknovich, who helped to run this week's programme. Next time, we'll be finding out about the science of forensics from Dr Trevor Emmett. We'll be exploring how he finds out who done it, and also finding out how fat you'd need to be to stop a speeding bullet. In fact, we'll be doing the experiment live here on The Naked Scientist next time. Don't forget our question of the week, of course. Sabina wants to hear from you if you can tell us why does a bug fly in circles around a light bulb, or if you have any other questions that you'd like us to sniff out the answer to for you, just email questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com. And on our website, thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum, you can find out all about the thriving hubbub of science chit-chat that's going on from all around the world. Do come and join us. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.